Um, we talked a bit, um, thank you very much, all of you. We talked a bit yesterday about how um, the language we choose in, in many ways determines um, how we conceive things and therefore how we act. So have we, in pursuing and calling something a national health service, is that, is that in, in a sense, have we misnamed that in the emphasis that it places on health narrowly conceived rather than the social determinants of, of health that in fact appear to have a far greater impact on justice and well-being, yet I'm pretty sure that in the UK our performance on the social determinants of health are great. I think the National Health Service was born of a different era and a different set of values, and as, as well as caring for everybody equally and people not worrying about money and rich people not going in separate rooms and all those things that bind a society together. We had district medical officers who looked at the broader social conditions that are creating ill health. I think one of the reasons it's being marketized and undermined is because the values that underpinned it have been undermined. Which values, which, so specifically, how have those values changed? Which values? It's, it's the, the, the post-Second World War values that said, we're gonna build a new kind of society where everyone's included, everyone gets a chance to work, to have a decent house, to have healthcare, to be educated, the welfare state, the beverage. And it was an enormous advance historically that was really reversed by Thatcherism and New Labourism. Um, and you know, you, the, the growth of inequality came after the 70s. And this marketized atomization, neoliberalism, is a different set of values. And the national health is struggling on because people love it. They still love it. Um, but, but the values that underpin it are being chipped away by and the way it's being. But I, th I think this is. To take it into that more global dimension is interesting. If you look at the history of nations, what you're seeing at the moment is a remarkable transition in many countries where the quest for universal health coverage, the notion of equity as a defining principle of your society is something that people struggle for everywhere. It wasn't, it's not unique to the United yeah, Kingdom sure. in 1940, whatever. Um, it's something you see now in many middle-income countries and even in some low-income countries. Um, so there is something very special about what that's saying. It's almost as if society's advanced to a point where there's this existential moment of understanding that together they can achieve something which is about universalism and the obligations they owe to each other in terms of their well-being and welfare. But what you see, interestingly, is it's not just a health system that's born. What it is, it's a system of social protection. It's much broader than health. And indeed, in countries like Mexico, they call it a system of social protection. And health is a part of that. And that's what happened in this country in the 1940s. So what's happened in the last 60 years is that there's been a separation of that vision as health as part of a much broader thinking about protecting our society. And we've put it in a little box health, and we've separated it from welfare and social protection, and that is a tremendous mistake, and the challenge is to reunite health with this broader vision we have about social justice, and that's the quest that we have to achieve over the next decade. So why, I mean, you, I mean we're talk, you're talking about a sort of an evolution of a societal conception of, of welfare more broadly conceived. So, Given that there was a sense that in the post-war era there 
that was a, a real aspiration. Why has it got to a point where those are so separate in, for example, this country? What's, what's happened there? Or was it a naive aspiration at the outset? Is it being meaningfully realized elsewhere in a way that's palpable? I mean, I think there's a, a very interesting, I, I think Claire hit the nail on the head there, that the, the, the whole beverage report was a search for a new society born from a time of crisis. And the NHS was a form of social glue, a social networking that held us all together. In a sense, what that, what's happened is other forms of social glue, the fabric that binds us, has, has become unwoven. And the, the NHS is, is, is still there in an increasingly atomized world. I think it all goes back to this issue of uncertainty and our quest, the, the notion of social protection and resilience. And in a sense, I think at a time now, the public are looking for more and more from the NHS at a time when actually the NHS, unfortunately, has less and less resources to fill that gap. So I'm interested in your um, term crisis there. Yesterday, Joe Shapcott was talking about how you know, moments of crisis force imaginative uh, leaps. So, you know, we're, so we're mooting um, great wars as a, as a clear prompt of crisis. And just then, Matthew, you were talking about um, global warming, climate change, in fact, you know, being very remote crises that are hard to believe and therefore not prompting action. So is there a sense that we're so, um, the belief is that we're sort of quite comfortably on our laurels and don't need to therefore engage pressing social issues of unifying yeah, The financial crisis isn't over yet, and that's the crisis we mustn't waste, because we either go further down that road of, of inequality and insecurity and atomization and nastiness, or we reinvent some kind of forward-looking values that unites people and will make life happier and make us capable of the cooperation that's needed to, to deal with global warming. And that means, of course, we have to look globally. But I think if we can move there out of this crisis, which hasn't played through yet, it will also give people meaning and a greater satisfaction. And lots of health indicators will improve because people won't just abuse alcohol to get oblivion or you know all the other things that are marketized at every street corner. So I'm hopeful, but it's going to be a struggle. And I think as things get harder, the right will rise too. It could get quite nasty. But, but, the, but the need for people to combine, to demand and imagine something better will also be much more intense. And that's the exciting thing that's coming. <laughs> Sorry, Colin. I hate to disagree with Claire on anything, but uh, uh, I don't think the NHS should be seen as having been born out of the crisis. I think it was the product of 100 years of organized struggle. And I think the very points that Claire is making about <coughs> collectivity were built. And I wish I thought that we could build them in that next 10-year period that uh, people are talking about. I mean, my feeling is that, look back in 20 years, we will see that essentially what we did was hand over planning and forward thinking to the FTSE 100. I mean, this is the real problem. We've lost a governmental structure fed by popular pressure through party channels. I mean, they're, they're gone. We, we accept that, that that doesn't work. But we haven't got a substitute. And the place has been occupied by the large corporations, which, of course, plan. The very thing that nanny state is not allowed to do is the sine qua non of operation of these powerful corporations. So it seems to me, historically, we'll look back and think, or if anybody's writing this history, say, how come that 
a species which had the capacity to think collectively in its own interests, handed, it over, handed over the thinking and planning to organizations that were not dedicated to thinking in community interests, but dedicated by law to thinking in terms of shareholder interests. And it's a completely different outcome. Mm. I mean, I Now, I want to be optimistic, like Claire as well, but I think we have underestimated the damage that inequality is doing in people's, not just all their ordinary material lives, but their, their psychology. Yeah. Marion Peacock in Sheffield, actually, has done some absolutely crucial work that was just reported this week, um, looking at the lives of women and their attitudes to themselves and, and their families. And we mustn't underestimate the importance of what inequality does to the sense of social comparison and shame. And what she sh has shown is that the way women deal with inequality in very poor parts of Sheffield is that they, they look around them and the response they have is to, is to disavow all dependency on anybody else. And they, tr they emphasize their independence their self-reliance. What it is, is an internalization of neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. You know, the values of neoliberalism have become the fabric of their psychology because that's the only way to valorize their identity in a neoliberal society. So what we're seeing is the inequality, the neoliberal world that we are in, is changing people's psychological expression of themselves. And that's a very deep social transformation to try and address. So it's, this is not a simple fix, but it's why inequality is such a powerful wound on our society and our individual psychology and sense of ourselves. That's very interesting. So in a sense, you're, there's a sort of snowball effect to this in that the society where you were alluding to post-war and now, are, almost capable of entirely different conceptions, that, that, that the, the world model is internalized. Well, could I echo something Colin said? Because, of course, Beveridge, Keynes, and all that were prior writing and thinking and creating a different worldview or a possibility of people... Because you have to have hope mm. to demand something better. And, and so the work, the intellectual and moral work and political work that went into creating the post-war settlement started earlier, and we need to be working now about the new order we want in this country and worldwide. And do you need but I'm just, all I'm saying is the financial crisis will intensify. So this either we'll get fascistic forces becoming stronger and stronger, well, that probably will happen, but also I think people saying, isn't there something better will get louder. And then the job is to be saying, yes, it looks like this and this is what you do. Is hope in itself enough or do, do, do you think we need a bit more realism as well? And so, you know, the, the, the pressure to, to, to have uh, optimistic thinking on lots of fronts. No, I mean, we had to have Keynes and Beveridge. Y yes, you, you know, the socialist Sunday schools and the time when kids were down the mines dreamed of a fair world. But then you've got to have people who elaborate how we can go from here forward to make it feasible but also, i mean I, I think look back to the 19th century mm. and of course the great birth of the sanitary reform mm. movement was a fantastic expression of that fusion between science mm. and politics mm. so can we create that same the same conditions whereby a very broad 
medical, public health, scientific community can become repoliticized to challenge those forces and say we want something better in the way that Claire is describing. Now, the conditions, unfortunately, in the early 21st century are very different from the 19th in the sense that medicine, and this is where Colin's point is so important, has become corporatized, and public health has become corporatized. And so that means that you know, if you look for leadership from health, people are scared because they will lose their jobs if they challenge that system. So, so what has happened is there has been a disabling of the very community that in the 19th century was responsible for one of the massive great social transformations of our society. And can we diagnose that problem? I think we can, but what can we do about it? And that, I think, is the great challenge for the health community um, coming out of that disabling condition. And is this, I mean, when you, Richard, you're describing justice being realized through processes as much as outcomes, a refinement of our democratic debate and process. Is that what you're alluding to there? And if so, how do you realize that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, is, it is about creating the conditions for, and not being frightened of, conflict. Hmm. I mean, it, you know, some t I was at a meeting on Friday where the chief medical officer, again, somebody I admire greatly, criticized me and something I'd written at a meeting because I'd said we needed to challenge and protest against government reforms. And she said, if you challenge, don't challenge, constructively engage. And I, my response to that is, you know, if Martin Luther King had come along and said, look, I've got a 10-point action plan for how we need to fix this, you know, did that change anything? No. Unless you go in there and you protest and you resist and you march and you, you have acts of social protest, that is the way you're going to change things. And when anybody says don't do that, sit at the table of government, don't disagree, um, that's where medicine went wrong with the health reforms currently, that we were also desperate not to lose our place at the table of government, that we didn't resist, we left it too late. And that collusion, <laughs> what we have done is we have colluded with a government, a coalition government, God help us, which is destroying one of the great social benefits which has been exported to many other countries in the world. I mean, and we have, as Colin says, we're presiding over this. How crazy is this? I, d I suppose this might be a good opportunity to just, um, so given we have a duty to uh, prompt, um, so affront, political affront, conflict, in order to establish um, a better state of affairs, what is the panel's reaction to uh, the doctor's strike? You, no one's even heard of it. It's just how impressive <laughs> it was. It, as a, as it didn't work. It, uh, you've got to get your thinking right, and then you've got to get your tactics right. I understand, and I kind of respect why, but it, 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 it wasn't the right idea. It was a bad tactic. So, well, bad first of all, it was about pensions. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't about the bill. So the, 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 what was very weird about the whole thing was that on the front page of BMA News Review every week, you, the lead story was always about the pensions crisis for doctors. And you know, absolutely, you know, I don't want to take anything away from, from doctors that these, this should be a source of concern. But if you're weighing up the two issues and you have a strike about pensions and you let the health bill go through, come on, guys, we got it wrong. <laughs> Colin. Doctors shouldn't feel guilty alone. I mean, the whole question of strike action 
in public services is a huge problem, which yeah. has not been well resolved by most public sector unions in this country, or indeed in other countries. I remember once in Paris, there was a public sector fight going on, and instead of going on strike, the bus and bus drivers stopped the buses periodically and lectured the passengers on what the issue was. <laughs> and I remember in another case, I can't remember where it was, they ran the buses but didn't collect the fares. I mean, there's, there are imaginative possibilities for doctors too. <laughs> and the strike is always a failure. I mean, the romantic side, there's other ways, and it's the last resort, and it's got the difficulty in the public sector that you point to. But I think the key word there is there are imaginative, hmm. imaginative ways. I think we can't be too pessimistic. I mean, the, the, the youth of today are often sort of demonised. Well, actually, all the young people I meet, they're incredibly politically active and engaged and interested. But what they often lack is any clear channel or conduit through which to kind of get involved and feel they're playing a real role. It is about a more a deeper, more imaginative form of politics. But if I may say, I think what's wrong with politics isn't just people have stopped believing in it. Something's wrong in the process that people protest against higher fees, you know, get pictures with their local candidate, vote for the one who promises not to do it. And then it, it so people, the political processes don't seem to work anymore. There's a deeper problem than just people giving up. Also, we, we've, we've allowed ourselves to um, change the terms of engagement about our debates on health. For example, um, health, in every document you now see coming out of Department of Health and even medical institutions, it's not about health as an intrinsic value that we care about. It's got to be about health in order to be economically stronger for wealth. Yeah. So in every mission statement that's being rewritten for the MRC or Department of Health, it's all about health and wealth. In other words, health is only good because it has instrumental value. The intrinsic importance of health, forget it. We've given up on that. That is a huge mistake. Um, and that's part of the corporatization of our society. That the only things that matter, that count, that are valid, are things that are about business, about profit, about money, about finance. And that is something that we definitely have to resist. And the health sector should be resisting it, and we're not. It's exactly the same with education. All the language about universities and so on is, exactly. this is the way you make exactly. the economy stronger. And, you know, the, the beauty of the quality of education, what it can do for the human spirit, Phew, forget that. And that's interesting what you're both saying, because you're commenting on phenomena, and I suppose I'm just wanting, so we can look at those and say these things are happening in several social institutions. Ray Tallis, I remember reading something he, he wrote a few years ago about society getting the doctors it deserves, and so doctors almost flourishing from a society, they're part of that society. So if indeed the political processes aren't working, that is as much a reflection of the society that produces those processes as, in fact, the processes that are informing the development of a society. There's a circularity to this, which I'm struggling to see a starting point of. I mean, and I guess this comes back to your point, Richard, about meaningful refinement of processes through conversation and debate. Um, the doctor strikes a really interesting point, is it? Because it, it, not only did we achieve nothing with it, but we striked with on the very arguably the very wrong a wrong prompt yeah. irrespective of the rightness of the issue around pensions there's a much more pressing debate to be had one of the things that's gone wrong is that labor bought neoliberalism 
so the contest of ideas closed down. Um, I mean, it's not only that fault, but that is a big thing that happened in British society. So that, and now politics is dominated by the spin and what will please the media, and most of it's earned by Murdoch, and we don't think or talk about anything in depth. I mean, that is a real disease and problem because you yeah, can't sure. find new solutions unless we can have big conversations and big thinking. There's a few whisperings on, as soon as I heard strike kind of echo around the hall, so I'm, I'm sure we'll pick that up uh, a lot. Um, I just want to talk about then, contextualise this more widely on the international um, scene. What can this, you know, we're, I think we're not, we're not great in this country necessarily is on the idea of learning from what others might do. So what examples are there internationally of things being done better, both in terms of content, but also in terms of uh, political processes and ideology? Anyone? Well, all the social indicators from the more equal societies are healthier and happier. All of them. Yeah. Educational achievement, uh, health indicators, crime levels, Can you give us some specific examples? Well, so. if you go to Sweden, Netherlands, yeah. those, are, those are the countries. Yeah. With the, uh, yeah. But even there, Sweden's kind of got the government moving to the right. The neoliberal thing became so hegemonic, but I think it's at its height before it's going to be more and more questioned. And it is the rightness or leftness or wrongness of it the issue so much as the actual um, equality of it? Or are you suggesting that in itself, the rightness, and by right I mean right-wingness. Well, well, I'm just saying if you want to measure quality of life indicators, go to those societies right. on health, on educational outcomes, on crime yeah. being reduced, on mental health being less bad, you know. Yeah. Sam, there are many societies actually today that, are, that, that have understood the lessons actually of the British NHS yeah. and are now implementing many of those lessons and they're in middle income countries. Yeah. Um, Mexico, Seguro Popular of 2003, Popular Health Insurance was all about um, social protection. What's taking place in China yeah. is, is incredible. Yeah. They have seen over the last decade under the previous regime um, uh, now they're up to over 90% universal coverage for health. And this was driven um, partly by um, a sense that they wanted a better society, but also because they knew that if they didn't do that, there'd be political instability and the whole regime would fall down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are many different motivations for universal health coverage, but, you know, in Brazil and beginning in India, there is this vision that this is an absolutely vital path to uh, improving the development of humanity. Yeah, sure. Yes, Colin. Well, uh, defenders of the NHS have been so driven to apologize for it that I think something needs to be said on this subject. I mean, clearly you can't borrow from other countries indiscriminately. Every country has national characteristics. So I'm a bit leery about, I mean, I totally agree that the spirit level work is really powerful and important and we should pay attention but how we arrive at our mode of being equal will have to be for us but before we look around to the French which is the current or was recently the current uh, go-to place to admire a health service I think we should read the Commonwealth Fund's annual reviews of the health service outcomes in developed countries and the last one I read I think it was 2011 is an absolutely fascinating document because the UK comes out level with Switzerland as the best by far health service for sick people. 
They interviewed sick people in large quantities in 11, 11 countries. And I opened this with you know, the usual anxiety because they always have to begin a talk by saying, we know the health service isn't perfect, but. But it was, it wasn't perfect, but it was the best along with the Swiss who spend half as much again per head on their health service. So before we get too apologetic, I think we should reckon that it's extremely difficult to build something as complex as a health service that will work for everybody. It's not hard to deliver good health care to 10% of the population as you might in the United States. To do it for everybody at a high quality and equally very, very difficult. We do it extraordinarily well, or we were doing it extraordinarily well until uh, the health bill came in. Which feeds a bit into what you were talking about, Matthew, and public expectation and the divide there. In fact, you know, it's something that we notice in, in, in just daily practice that you know someone's quality of life will reflect a bit the what where they're at and where they might expect to be. Um, and we'll come on to that a bit on the communication session. But 